Well, good morning. We are going to do something great today. We are going to finish the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to go right into 2 Samuel. So we are, we're doing great. So if you want to turn there in your scriptures, that would be great. Um, today, what I called today's sermon, at least in my notes, is expected. It's the fall of Saul and the rise of David. And if you have been following along with us, you know that uh, Saul was the first king of Israel, but David is the anointed one that God has chosen. He's in the waiting. And so today we're going to see kind of a shift in that story. I came across a slogan this week from Gatorade. Gatorade used used to have a slogan uh, in the form of a question. When the question was asked, it was meant to get you to consider that maybe the reason for your failure or lack of excellence was because you lacked Gatorade. The old slogan that they used to have was, is it in you? And I think we have a picture of it. Is it in you? They'd have these great commercials of people doing wonderful things, and then they would pose the question after they, of course, saw them drink Gatorade. They would say, is it in you? But then they switched their slogan, and they changed it recently to be from, is it in you, to win from within. So basically, these slogans are both accurate and inaccurate, because mankind is sinful to the very nature, and if left up to us with the slogan applied to our sin nature, is is it in you, we would have to all answer yes. Our sin is in us. It's part of us. It's who we are when left up to ourselves. But when they say win from within, or is it in you, if we applied that to the transformation of the blood of Jesus Christ on our lives, then suddenly it goes from this sin nature to a brand new creation in Christ, and the ability to overcome things is not from within me when left up to myself, but it is from within me because of Jesus Christ living in me. And so the world wants to put all of these things external. You can just take something and drink it, and suddenly you can win from within. You have all of the power that you need, which is not true. But when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, suddenly he is victorious. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is within you, and you, because of him, have the ability to win from within. And so the question, going back to their original slogan, is, is it in you? meaning the Holy Spirit. And so today, with those ideas in mind, we're going to see this internal battle. Paul Tripp says your actions, reactions, behavior, responses, and words are more shaped by what's inside of you than what's outside of you. So as a believer, we need to constantly check ourselves. Who's fighting the battle? Are you pursuing more and more of the ways of the Lord with the Holy Spirit in you? Is he winning from within or are you trying to win on your own? And we're going to compare Saul and David as we turn to 1 Samuel 31 and then into 2 Samuel chapter 1. So the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31 is the official final fall of Saul. 
And if you follow along, what we have been doing as of late is because there's so much historical context here and we're not spending the next five years studying First and Second Samuel, uh, we're summarizing. And so if you were to look at verses one through three of First Samuel, you would see that there's this battle that rages on. And I'm going to read to you those verses. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and his brothers, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. The king of Israel has been wounded in battle. His sons have been killed. So here he is. You remember Saul? Back in chapter 9, he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was taller than anyone else from the shoulders upward, and Israel looked to their king as someone who would be pleasing to the eyes. They chose him instead of God very naively, and it was a poor decision. And now we see this great reminder that man is frail, and death is certain for man. And we all have this battle within us, that there's this battle that rages on in war, as we see in 1 Samuel 31, but we have this battle within us. And if we fight to our own power, or we try to have our own looks win the battle, or our own charm or manipulation, we will fail, and Saul is no exception to that. And so as we move through these next few verses, Saul is injured, and what we see about him is that Saul gives up. In what some may say is a very historic or heroic move, Saul asks his armor bearer to put him out of his misery so that he won't be mistreated by the enemy. They won't find him and violate him and make a public spectacle of him. So he asks his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer will not do it. And so Saul, thinking that there's no other choice, there's no other option, he looks around and he says, fine, I will take matters into my own hands, and he kills himself. And then his servant, the armor bearer, kills himself. The Israelites see that their king has done this from across the valley, and so they are fearful, and they abandon their cities only to have the Philistines move right into their cities. And so there is chaos going on. The king has just killed himself. Cities are being abandoned and the enemy is moving in. And this is the ultimate demise of Saul. Think of the journey of this guy. He was anointed as the first king of Israel. The spirit of God placed on him for this task. He was a man that was esteemed by the people around him, celebrated as king, a man who accomplished great military victories. But his heart began to wander. He begins to play around with the will of God. He embraces disobedience and he grows rebellious. He's jealous of the victories of David and is more and more obsessed with power. And he's more controlled by jealousy with each day. He becomes so rebellious that God removes his spirit from him. And in a desperate attempt for answers, the anointed king of Israel visits a medium and calls on the dead for wisdom. And now in this final act of rebellion, selfishness, despair, and awful defeat, Saul 
ends his own life. This is not a moment of heroism. This is not an honorable act. Scripture is not giving us a moment right here to look at Saul as being an example. In fact, it's the opposite. We are to see the slow fade and the ultimate end to those people who reject God. You see, in the blink of an eye, Saul didn't come to this point right now. He chose time after time to choose himself over God. And he trusted himself to provide the victory from within instead of the anointing power of God. He would try to call on the name of God like drinking a Gatorade that would fulfill you to be able to now perform a certain duty. But God is not like that. And Saul constantly chose self over God. And when he cried out, God wasn't there for him because he had already rejected God. Saul had rejected God. And so let this be a lesson for us. And now that we know the history of Saul, we see that he was great at rationalization, at bending the truth in such a way that it would relieve his conscience. He would make things acceptable to himself, even though he knew they were wrong. If you do it enough times, you begin to allow it. Paul Tripp says this, that's unbelief. By giving in to the pattern of self-swindling, you are not taking humbly and seriously the convicting message of the word of God. And this always leads to further turning away because the word of God is meant to be the spiritual anchor. When you cut the rope of the anchor, you give room for the evil of your heart to grow. And ultimately, like Saul, your heart is hardened. And that thing that once bothered you before doesn't bother you anymore. Can anyone relate to that? Maybe when you first had kids, your kids would say a certain word, and as a parent you went, I can't believe they said that word, and now fast forward to teenage years, and maybe you're very content with the things that they're saying because it's not as bad as what that person is saying. And we allow these things to develop where we say no at first, but then every little bit of exposure, we begin to be more and more comfortable with it. And this is the story of Saul. This is exactly what he did. And eventually he got to a point of consulting the dead and then taking his own life because the slow fade had happened for years. The victory is not from within. Saul did not have the power. God has the power, and Saul rejected that power, and this is Saul's ultimate demise. We find ourselves at verse 8, and in between verses 8 and 10, we actually find the very thing that Saul didn't want to happen happens. The Philistines disgrace Saul. And then we see in the following verses after that that there are valiant men who respect the king, but enemies do not respect him. And so the chapter ends with the dead people from this battle being stripped of their valuables. People are looting, essentially. They're taking the things from the dead. And in the process of doing that, the enemy finds Saul and his sons. And they can't just let him rest. They need to flaunt the fact that they just killed the king of Israel, and so they cut his head off. They hang his armor in the temple as an object to basically worship and proclaim victory, and then they hang his beheaded body on the wall to gloat. 
This is what happens when we reject God. We celebrate death. We revel in our own victories. And Saul had the very thing happen to him that he didn't want. But then we do see some men from Jabesh Gilead go rescue the body and they honor him with a burial. They find his bones and they bury the king in respect. So even in the midst of the leadership of Saul in Israel, there's still some godly respect and courage that we see in these men. And that's because they're following the ultimate king, God, not the earthly king. But the point of the chapter has already been made in, in chapter 31. Saul rejected God and it led to his demise. And so what we see in the book of Hebrews is this exact warning. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Saul became hardened day by day by the deceitfulness of sin, convinced that he could do things on his own. And when it came to his end, he had nowhere else to turn but on himself. And he killed himself. And so we see the deceit of sin is subtle. He didn't wake up and it happened. It's every day. And so the message that we already see from Saul applied to our own lives is that every day we must be on guard. There's a battle that is raging on and we must yield the power of the Holy Spirit, not as a weapon for us to control, but for, him to allow, for us to allow him to win the victory from within. That is the driving force. And so, with no confetti or balloons, we finish 1 Samuel. But we move right into 2 Samuel because now, who is the next king? We know who it is, but let's find out who David is and what is happening with him. So the timing of what we just saw with Saul and that battle and the battle that we're going to see with David was happening the same time as the battle that we talked about last week in chapter 30. Just different accounts because they're different geographical locations. So this is all the same battle with the Philistines and the Israelites, and now we see the Amalekites. And so if you are open to chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, you're going to see that David defeats the Amalekites. David has just accomplished a great victory against the Amalekites while Saul has had a miserable defeat that ends in his death. And so right away we see this comparison from Saul to David. This trajectory that we are introduced to in the chapter, first chapter of 2 Samuel is that David is victorious. That's how we're going to know David. It ends with Saul being defeated. And the very thing that Saul couldn't do, defeat the Amalekites, David starts 2 Samuel by defeating the Amalekites. There's a lot of people who would say that the Amalekites represent sinful nature of man. And so when we look at it this way, Saul was never able to overcome the Amalekites, his sinful nature. He tried to do it on his own, and you can't. David, however, a man after God's own heart, returns to the center of our study here, and he has now struck down the Amalekites because he's the king that Saul wasn't. But don't get too hyped up in David because 
Jesus is the king that David wasn't. So remember from last week, we don't worship man. We don't look to man as the one who fulfills it all. That power is not from within us. The power is Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. And so right away, we see that David is the king that Saul wasn't by defeating the Amalekites, but David still points us to Jesus, the ultimate king. So we see that right away in verse one, but if we look at verses two through 10, we find one more Amalekite. Wait, I thought you said that he defeated the Amalekites. He will. He defeated the battle, but now there's one straggler in verses two through 10. In verse two, it says that a man approaches David with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. This is a indication of a time of mourning. So we know that he was just coming from the body of Saul and he proceeds to tell David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. His claim, however, if you were to read this carefully, David asks him, how do you know this? And here's what he says. Verses six through 10, they'll be on the screen, but they're somewhat summarized. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear. He said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So, this Amalekite says this, so I stood beside him and killed him. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to you, my Lord. Now, right away, you may go, controversy, right? Because that account is contradictory to the account of 1 Samuel chapter 31, where it says Saul killed himself. So what do we do with that information? We ignore it? No. Keep it simple, okay? So while that is a contradictory account, think of who's writing and who's speaking here. Chapter 31 of 1 Samuel is the author telling from the guidance of the Holy Spirit what has happened historically. We have no reason to doubt the Holy Spirit. We have no reason to doubt that that part, 1 Samuel 31, is inaccurate. But we do know that mankind fails. And so we do know that we have to question the account of the man who is speaking in 2 Samuel 1, and we need to look at his motives. So very simply, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel is what happened. Saul killed himself. That's God's word. Within God's word, we have the account of a man who says a different story. That man is lying. He is trying to gain advantage with the king. Do you notice what he says? He shows up in a time of mourning. He has the, the crown and the armlet, and he is playing to David's eventual kingship, trying to say, look what I've done for you. The king asked me to kill him, so I did. And now, David, you're the new king, and I bring you a crown and an armlet. And so now you can celebrate because Saul was your enemy. Saul chased you for years. He's tried to murder you, but now he's dead and you're the king. And so where's my reward? So that's how we deal with that contradiction. The man, the Amalekite, is lying. He brings a truthful message that Saul and Jonathan are dead, but he is lying about how it happened. And we do this quite frequently. We try to win the favor of people. We try to gain advantage in various ways. And so he comes to David, this new king, 
trying to gain advantage. And he makes up a story because he knows David doesn't know the real story. And so he thinks, I can fool him. I can stretch the truth. I can make myself look better than I actually am. And now that I've said it that way, some of you are going, I can relate to that. The fish was this big, right? That's the common way that we look at that. But we all do it even if you don't fish. We all have ways that we glorify ourselves in our storytelling. And why do we do that? Well, you can't blame me. I mean, it makes me look good. Yeah, we can blame ourselves because that sin manifests itself in so many different ways and we want to paint ourselves to be better than we actually are when the truth is none of us are worthy. And so that's why we need a savior, Jesus Christ. And we see this Amalekite trying to be a hero that he wasn't. And ultimately, this hero died for a lie because what we see in a little bit is that David ends his life. But this Amalekite is alive long enough to see the powerful testimony of the transformational power of Jesus Christ in David because his first reaction to the news of Saul and Jonathan dying, look at verse 11, David mourns. Here is this servant or this Amalekite coming to the king with excitement. Look at the news I'm bringing to you. You're going to be king and here's some jewelry. And he's expecting David to celebrate. Verses 11 through 16. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. They mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to this young man, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. For Samuel told us of many opportunities that David had to kill the Lord's anointed. And there was something within him there was something with David that told him, don't lift your hand against the Lord's anointed, and David never did. David even mourned and regretted cutting the robe of Saul, as we saw in 1 Samuel, because he, to some degree, used a weapon against the Lord's anointed, and now we see what, me, what it means when you reject God because this Amalekite looked for a leg up, looked for popularity among the new king, and he said, I'm going to kill the Lord's anointed. And David challenges him and says, no, that is not going to happen. You respect God's plan. You respect God's people. And so David has him executed, thus defeating the Amalekites. You see, David is taking a stand with the very thing he wrestled with, but there was a power that David knew, the power of God. The warning that I see for this is, what advantages are you trying to gain in your life with your storytelling, with the favor that you show certain people expecting other favor in return? 
Or are you genuinely going about your life guided by the Holy Spirit like David we see? In the tough areas, in the critical areas, are you trusting Jesus Christ with all of them? And what we see after the morning, after this Amalekite is executed, we see the finishing of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel because in verses 17 through 27, we see that David shows God's heart. You remember what David's life has been like up to this point. Although he's the anointed king of Israel, he was not king yet. He's been in exile. He's been in exile because of the jealousy, the obsession, the vengeance of Saul. And you would think that this would be a moment of celebration. You would think that now David is relieved from his enemy pursuing him. You would think that there would even be a little bit of an indication that David gave some sort of a fist pump, like, yes, Saul is dead, and now I'm going to turn to my mourning. But scripture doesn't say that. He immediately mourns the death of his enemy. This brings great conviction to me because we have watched on the news so many times of our country going in and defeating enemies. And the news report is always celebratory. Because yes, our enemy is dead. But the ultimate celebration is the fact that Jesus Christ has defeated the enemy, Satan. And that there's victory in Jesus Christ. And David shows us something that can only be done because of the power of the Holy Spirit within us, which is mourning the death of an enemy. Because that is one of God's people, God's creation, who died without the truth of Jesus Christ applied to him. And so he is in eternity, for eternity, in hell, separated from God. And David mourns that reality. As celebratory as the fact is that his enemy is dead and his life just got a little bit easier, he mourns the fact that another soul is gone for eternity. And so David shows us something very convicting for our own lives. How much do we celebrate the loss of enemies? How much do we celebrate when something happens to someone we don't like and we kind of go, huh, serves you right? David doesn't show us that. Because David clung to the power within him, Jesus Christ. He trusted Almighty God. And what we see in the following verses is that he shows God's heart because he mourns. And he pours out this great song, this lament over the life of Saul and Jonathan. It doesn't make sense to us that he would mourn the loss of this enemy except for the fact that there's a power within him. And at the end of the chapter, there's a mourning that actually makes sense. David and Jonathan were great, close friends. And so we want to look at the end of the chapter where David talks about Jonathan's love. Jonathan loved David selflessly and with a godly love. And if you were to read the verse at the end of chapter 2 or chapter 1, he says about Jonathan, your love to me was extraordinary. It even goes on to say, surpassing the love of women. And people have wrongly taken this account to assume that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. This is not the case at all. David was claiming that he has this great love for Jonathan. And 
there was not a single person on earth who showed God's love to David the way that Jonathan did. It surpassed anyone that he ever knew on earth, even the multiple wives that David has taken. Jonathan loved purely as God loves, and David is recognizing this. So don't misinterpret that or misimply that statement. David shows a sincere, deep sorrow. And so, because he was a musical man of poetry, he sings a song of lament, and you can read the end of chapter one for yourself. But he saw a beauty in Saul that he didn't want anyone to rejoice over Saul's death. In fact, he wanted people to mourn and praise Saul as a mighty warrior, calling attention to the positive things. He wants Israel to recognize that Saul did good for them. This is the testimony of the heart of God that David shows us. David easily could have grabbed hold of bitterness, attempted murder from Saul multiple times, and David could have been bitter and angry, and this could have released all of that bitterness in celebration that Saul is dead, but he doesn't. He's not just free from bitterness, but his heart was filled with love for Saul because he trusted the power of God. Bitterness cannot win when you trust the power of God. And so what we see as we end chapter one, what is the summary of today? In my notes, I titled it The Power Within. You see, the power within Saul was his own dependence, and it led him down the path of destruction. But the power within David was the heart of God, and it led him to this point, the point of mourning the death of his enemy. So the challenge that I want to leave you with today is that we need growth, We need to trust the power of God to be within us and rely on that. And so I pose a few questions. Do you desire to grow in the Lord or are you content with being where you are? Do you trust the power within you like Saul did or do you trust the power of God within you like David? And I want to give you one more Gatorade example. I found this and I'll read it for you because it's hard to see. And I want you to think spiritually as I read this. This is what the world says, but think of how this might apply spiritually. It says this, we want many things. We want those shoes that make us run faster, jump higher, the super light ones that we saw on TV. We want a new bat, new gloves, new uniforms, and a new headband to match, and maybe one of those sweat-resistant undershirts too, just to stay cool. Now listen to this. Since when did we care so much about what we put on our bodies rather than what we put in them? Whatever happened to wanting more from our most important piece of equipment, the body, preparing it, fueling it, and rebuilding it? Why don't we want that? If that's what it takes, why don't we want more from ourselves? And so I ask in a spiritual way. Why don't we want more from ourselves? Whatever happened to wanting more from our spiritual life, where we say less, we say less of me and more of Christ, where we put to death finally through the power of Jesus Christ in us who has victory over sin, we say no to the sin that entangles us and we say yes to Jesus Christ. Why don't we want that? If that's what it takes, Jesus Christ has given us everything that we need to trust his power within us to overcome all of these things. 
And yet, we find ourselves content. We find ourselves slowly on a fade that we might not even recognize, one that we saw in Saul. And that's scary. And so I ask you, is your desire to be filled with the Spirit so that every day you are growing more and more in patience, in peace, in love, in kindness? If you took a snapshot of your life and the trajectory that you're on, are you more patient with your enemies today than you were yesterday? Or are you stagnant? Or are you becoming more frustrated? And suddenly we recognize the big end game is Saul versus David, the power of ourselves or the power of Christ. Micah 3.8 says this, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the with the spirit of the Lord. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And we do not lose heart because even though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And so as we trust the Lord as our anchor, the trajectory of our lives becomes more like Christ. We're more joyful. We're more patient, we're more loving, and we can even reject bitterness and even mourn the loss of our enemies like David. And so if we don't evaluate our lives, we take the trajectory of Saul. We're gonna have a time of communion after I pray, but I want you to take this time of communion to evaluate your life. Align yourself with Christ in every area. Don't be content with mediocre. We should be excited and striving for more of Christ. We can't be content with a flatline faith. We need to grow in the Lord, and it starts from within. Not within you or your power, but through the power of Jesus Christ in you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this quiet time of communion that Pastor Steve is going to lead, and I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts us in the areas of our lives that we have grown weak, the areas that we have trusted ourselves, our own power. I pray that you would move in this place so that we would see a rising up of people who are now more committed than ever to trust the power within them called the Holy Spirit, not the power within us called sin. Thank you for the transformational power of Jesus Christ. I thank you that we have time to celebrate together as we close with communion and a song, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.